lift you up You feel like a hundred times yourself I wish everybody knew What's so great about you Oh, but your love is such a swamp You don't think before you jump And I said I wouldn't get sucked in This is the last time My name is Sammy. I'm the chemist minister. And um, if you've been with us at all this semester, you know we're, we're doing a series. Um, in the spring, we typically like to look at, at a book or a theme from the Old Testament. And so what we decided to do uh, this spring is actually look at the Ten Commandments together. It's funny. You know, I grew up in the, Christian, in, a, in, in the church. I grew up in a Christian home. And yet, for the longest time, uh, I could never have told you what the Ten Commandments not only were, but what they were about. And kind of the way we've been looking at them, we've been thinking about them together, that basically when we have the Ten Commandments, we have the first four that have everything to do with yours and my relationship with God. And then the last sort of uh, five through ten have everything to do with the way you and I relate to one another. And the way we're kind of looking at the first four and then the last six is thinking about this idea of conditions for community. This is what it looks like, one through four, to be in relationship and community, so to speak, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, triune God. And then five through ten is going to be looking at what does it look like for us to love one another well the way that Jesus told us to. And so tonight what we're doing is we've gotten to the second commandment, and I'm just going to read it for us. Um, And it's from Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. You've got it on your handout. Here's what the Lord said. Remember, the Lord gathered uh, his people, uh, and he he especially gathered Moses to lead them, and he spoke these words to them. Here's what he said when he gets to the second commandment. He says, You shall not make for yourself a carved or graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third in the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, the, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let me pray for us, and then I want to kind of dive into what I want to talk about. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I pray tonight that um, through this commandment, um, the commandment that, that you yourself gave to us before you even became one of us and walked the same earth that we walk, that you would become more uh, beautiful and believable to us tonight. Lord, uh, our problem is that you're not those things to us. Uh, you, a lot, some of us are here, and it's hard for us to believe in you, much less the gospel. And, and some of us are here, and we believe it, but it just doesn't seem as real as, as it once did when we first knew you. And I pray tonight that you would become bigger that you would become more beautiful, that we might love you more even as we listen to your word and listen to this commandment, and that you might be, in in very real ways, more near to us and more known to us. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. Uh, 500 Days of Summer, which I bought, I think I called it 50 Days of Summer last the last time we met. uh, But there's a scene in that movie towards the end that I love. And it's a scene where, if you've seen the movie, it's essentially they're interviewing uh, Tom's roommate. I think it's Paul's his name, and he's talking about your your ideal woman. If you could describe the ideal woman that you would want to date, 
what would she be? And he starts describing her, and he sort of says, you know, she would look this way, and she would be into football like I'm into football, and she would be this, this, and this. And then he stops, and he looks at the camera, and in one of my favorite scenes in recent movie history, he sort of says, but Robin, his girlfriend, but Robin is better. And then he pauses, and he says, she's real. And for me, as I watch that, I don't know if, if you've seen it and you've watched it. What it does for me is, not only does it kind of expose everything that the guys, you know, the guys, men and women here, wrestle with in terms of pornography and that kind of stuff, but I think it actually exposes something fundamentally at our heart in the way that we relate to God himself. And it's everything to do with the second commandment. And it's this, that you and I, part of our problem, part of your problem, is that we, we want God to be a certain way. We want to make him to be as we wish him to be. And part of what God is saying tonight is, you can't do that. And beyond that, the real me is far better than the me that you could come up with and build and and create yourself. Here's what we're going to do. We kind of did this with the first commandment. We're going to do it again with the second commandment because I think it's a helpful way of thinking about it. We kind of unpack this idea of basically what Luther used to call letting God be God. And the question for you tonight, the question for me tonight is, do you let God speak for himself? Do you let him reveal Everything about him, even the parts that you don't understand, even the parts that you don't like, or have you created a, a God in your own image and taken away the parts that you don't like and, and maybe exaggerated the parts that you do like? So here's how we're going to kind of look at it. Four kind of questions that we're asking. First, what does this commandment mean negatively? Second, what does it mean positively? Third, how does Jesus fulfill and transform it for us? And then lastly, what in the world does this have to do with you, junior, senior, freshman, sophomore, I don't know why I did it in that order, uh, but walking in Columbia on the campus of USC. So those four things. First, what does it mean negatively? When God says, you shall not make any graven or carved image of me, what is he saying? Well, it's interesting. You know, in his, historically speaking, the first two commandments often were tied together because they're very similar. But here's how I want to kind of differentiate them for you. In the first one, God is saying, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, what we talked about last time was you shall not make anything else your God, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your GPA, your career, whatever it is that you, what your mind drifts to and what your dreams and hopes are set on, don't make that your God, make God your God. And here's what the second commandment is saying. So we kind of say it, make God your God. The second commandment is basically saying this, make God your God. God as he's revealed himself Essentially in two ways, through his creation and his power and majesty and beauty, but especially in and through his commandments and his word. And we're going to talk especially through Jesus, who we're going to get to in a little bit. And so here's kind of what it means negatively. Is that basically what it means is you have to take and worship and love and follow God as he is, not as you wish him to be. God as he is, not as you wish him to be. Here's the way that, uh, that he puts it in Isaiah. He says it through Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, he says, For my thoughts, he's talking to his people, and he says, For my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. This is why Blaise Pascal, when he's thinking about God making us in his image, he has this genius line where he says, Basically, God made man in his image, and then man returned the compliment. And what you and I do is we want a God of our own making. We want God as one we can understand him, and we want God as, we can, as a God that we like, not a God that confronts us, not a God that is holy and other and different than us, not a God who challenges us, not a God who calls us away from living our lives for ourselves. We want a God who sort of blesses our plans for our lives, not crushes them. 
We want a God who sort of lets us and only affirms and, and, and sort of, you know, this is the best, this is why when we talk like Oprah or Joel Osteen, this is kind of the problem here, is basically there's nothing about that God that, you, that would even begin to confront you or tell you no. And here's the reality for you, is that if you don't have a God that can tell you no, you don't have God. Here's the way that I like to think about it. Um, so I have four kids. And uh, my son, especially, uh, I've taken to a fair amount of birthday parties. And there are two separate parties that, I want, that I've been thinking about this commandment, thinking about these two separate parties that kind of get this for me. The first was taking them to a Build-A-Bear workshop party, which was pure, pure misery for me because it's like, we're going to build a bear. I'm like, yay. And my son's like, yay. But we're doing it with this kind of girl in his class. And you know if you've ever been to Build-A-Bear, which you, I don't know if you have or not, but let me tell you how it works. <laughs> the idea is pretty simple. You take the bear that you want and the stuffing that you want and you put the bear together and you can do other animals you can do a tiger or lizard you know whatever your heart's desire is and you sort of stuff it and build it and you make it like you want it to be and Asher did a bear and he it was an awkward birthday party I remember it vividly because he wanted to leave the whole time and I was like trying to sit with all the kids while he was laying on the floor crying I'm like this is why being a parent is the worst but so we're doing build a bear and it's kind of like here but here's what's interesting Totally lost his attention, bored to death, even a little bit angry. And then there was another time, it wasn't a birthday party, but we took him there. There's a place in Statesboro that, that had like, it was like kind of like a mini zoo, and they brought this live bear, and we took the kids to see the bear. And I'm talking like, it was like a little, like a cage, no more than, you know, eight foot by eight foot, like this black bear that wasn't huge, but it was like a real bear. And you walk up to the cage, and you're sort of like, even me as a 30 you know, plus year old man is like, you know, a little bit terrified. And for me, that's the difference. You either have a build a God of your own liking and you're bored or you're angry. Or you're in the presence of a God that in all the right ways you can fear and be in awe of. And actually, he has your attention because he's glorious in his power. He's glorious in his strength. Here's the way I want to say it to you. God is not your God if you've never been in awe of him. God is not your God if there's nothing in you that in the rightest and most right ways fears him. That he has the final say and that he is worthy not only of your honor and your praise, but he's worthy of your awe. Have you ever been in awe of God? And if you've never been in awe of God, you don't know him. So first, what it means negatively. That's why Luther used to say, when we come to this, when we come to this commandment, we have to let God be God. We have to let him tell us who he is. We have to let him be who he is, not who we want him to be. And that challenges so much of the way that we think as American Christians. But here's the second thing. What does it mean positively then? So if negatively it means we take God as God, not as we want him to be. We take him as he is, not as we want him to be. Here's what it means positively. What it means positively is the good news is that God has actually revealed himself to us. You know, it's fascinating that when we get back to the Isaiah 55 passage, God is actually talking about the forgiveness of sins. And what he's saying, when he says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, he's actually talking about the way he shows compassion on our sinfulness and the way he shows grace toward our forgiveness. And that's when he says, that's how I'm different than you. And when we think about God, you have what we call on the one hand is transcendence, the sense of which he is huge and powerful. And and the Bible says that he spoke the word, you know, just with the word created all of the glories of what we see, galaxies. It's like the scene in Narnia that I love in The Magician's Nephew where they find Aslan and he's singing worlds into existence. 
And they're just in awe of what he's doing. That's what the Bible says about who God is. That he's absolutely transcendent and huge and powerful and beautiful. But he's also imminent. He's also come near to us. He also has grace for us. He could absolutely overwhelm us. If you know the Old Testament, that's what part of what the sacrificial system was about. If you know the Old Testament, that's part of how you know, there's this intense, fiery holiness about him. And yet, when we get, even in the Old Testament, but especially as we get to Jesus, there's a sense that he's come near to us. Because he, why? Because he wants us to know him. Because he knows us. He knows us because he made us. But he also has revealed himself because he wants us to know him. In other words, when I was at USC, you know, I took a fair amount of religion classes. And I remember the, the illustration that was always used that sort of said, all religions are essentially the same, you know, whether it's Christianity, Islam, you know, Buddhism, uh, you know, whatever, is, you know, Judaism, whatever. That essentially the illustration that was always used was the idea of an elephant. You know the illustration where all these different priests or all these different religious people are blindfolded and they come to an elephant and they grab onto the part as they approach the elephant. And as they grab onto a part, they just simply describe what the elephant is like. So one of the men grabs his tail and describes, oh, well, this is what God is, you know, the elephant being God, this is what God is like. But he's really just describing one part of God. And then the other guy grab, grabs his trunk and he's blindfolded, but he's describing this. And so this is the, the illustration that was always given to me. That means, you know, so essentially all were different, all the different religions, all they're really doing is describing different ways of thinking about and describing God. And the thing that changed me that kind of, you know, as I was thinking about this as a Christian, the thing that I think kind of changes the illustration for me is that what if the elephant came to us? No blindfolds. What if the elephant came to us and said, this is what I'm like. Know me. And that's what, I, interestingly, First John says about Jesus, that, that he, part of what's unique about Jesus is he came and he says, feel me, touch me, watch me, listen to me, you know, take a nap with me. That's sound weird. Eat with me. Laugh with me, dance with me, drink with me. Know me. And that's absolutely unique, but that's not, this is part of what God is doing in this commandment. He's sort of saying, part of your problem, my problem, is that God, we, we always have too small a view of who he is. That God is always, he's saying to us in this commandment that I'm always better than you've imagined me to be. Even the you that you think you want me to be, if you know the real me, I'm far, far, far better than you can know or imagine. And he's inviting us to know him. The way that I think about this is, I had a, a mentor figure who was, you know, I knew him as like, a, as like a high schooler growing up. And he was this very intimidating figure to me because he, uh, like in high school, he was a super tall guy. You know, he was a McDonald's All-American in this tiny high school that we grew up in together in Sumter, South Carolina. He ended up going to play college basketball at Clemson. And, um, you know, he had, unfortunately had a knee injury that kind of ended his career. But he was this very intimidating figure to me. And right after college, I remember, but he was, also, he was always sort of around the youth group I was in, and he would teach occasionally and lead Bible studies. I always kind of knew him from afar. But as I graduated USC and came back home to Sumter and just was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, I, I kind of reached out and said, I would love for you, if you have time, to meet with me. And so we started meeting, and at first it was kind of formal where we would get together and maybe open a, a passage of Scripture and kind of go through it. But then everything changed when he invited me to drive with him as he went and spoke at Spring Valley about this sort of, at this kind of FCA kind of event. And as I was kind of riding in the car, everything I kept thinking is he's inviting me. This is what, this is what changed our relationship forever is he wants me to know him and he wants to know me. And you've been in relationships like that. But is that the kind of relationship you have with God? 
where you know that he's inviting you to know him and to know that he's better and, and, and far better than you've ever imagined him to be. That's why he says in Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And here's my question for you, especially if you're a Christian. Because I think this has everything to do with the way we approach the Bible. Because if you've, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know the struggle of, of not, you know, I can spend all day long on Twitter, but it's really hard for me to read my Bible. And, and for a lot of you, I imagine that's the case. And for me, I think part of this is part of the problem. Is Sometimes when I think about the Bible, I don't see it. I see it like this. I see the Bible as a place to acquire knowledge about God. But I don't see it for what it is. Which is an invitation for me to know him more. An invitation for me to know his heart. An invitation for me to know what he's like. An invitation for me to know him more. And my question for you is, do you ever open the Bible simply because you want more of God? Because you want to know him more and love him more. And understand him better. That you might love him more. So first, what does it mean negatively that we, we sort of take him as he is, not as we want him to be? What does it mean positively that, that he, the beautiful thing is he wants us, he knows us, and he wants us to know him well, then I want to think about how does Jesus, how does it, basically, how does this relate to Jesus? How does Jesus kind of fulfill and transform this commandment? And the scene in Jesus' life that I think is really interesting is the scene, this, you know it if you've read the Gospels, the scene where Jesus, he knows what's coming. He's, he's a night, he's literally days away from the cross, and he's gone to his favorite spot where he, he goes all the time with his friends, and he often goes alone to pray to the Father. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was actually an olive garden where it was often like cool, shaded, so it was a good place to walk around, and, and Jesus often went there to pray. So here's Jesus, and he knows what's coming. He knows the cross is ahead of him. He knows he's going to be handed over. He knows he's going to die. And here he's in the garden, and you know the scene where he's pleading with the Father, saying, Father, I know you. You know me. You love me. Please, if there's any other way, please, please let this cut pass for me. Please, if there's any other way for men and women to be saved, please let it be. And then he says that thing that you and I very often have a, such a hard time saying. It sticks in our throat. We try to say it, but it's so hard for us to mean it when he says, but not my will, but thy will, your will be done. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Father, I know you. You know me. But you know what's best for me. And I, I can entrust that you know what's best for me. And, and as he prays this, something, the hardest yet most beautiful thing happens. There's a scene in Pride and Prejudice that I love. This is my favorite scene in the book, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. It's the scene where uh, Elizabeth Bennett finally, she, you know, the first impression she has of Mr. Darcy is awful, right? The, they meet, and they both sort of hate each other. They can't stand to be around each other. She thinks he's this self-righteous, just, ugh, this just, ugh, don't want to be around him. <laughs> and then she has that scene where she ends up going to his house. And you know the scene if you know the book or the movie. She, she's in his house. And he comes into his house, and for the first time, she gets to see what he's actually like. She gets to see what he's like with his family. She, she gets to see what he's like with his sister. She gets to see the sweetness and the real Darcy. And it undoes her in the best of ways. And I love that because this is what the garden does for us. The hard part is this. Jesus prays. He's saying, I, you know me. You know what's best for me. I know you. I trust you know what's best for me. And what does he get? Absolute silence. Absolute silence. And in the cross, what does he get? 
At the cross, we could truly say that that terrifying line from the gospel is where the Lord will say to some of us, depart from me, for I never knew you. That's what Jesus gets at the cross. He's saying, Father, I know you, you know me, and he's getting from the Father, depart from me, for I never knew you. Why? For us. That we might be known and know, know him. That we might know his grace. That we might know his forgiveness. That we might know the Father's love for us. What I love about the garden that's hard and beautiful is you see both on the one hand the lengths to which God has gone to know you and be known by you. But also the depths in which, with which you can trust him with the parts of your life that you don't understand or know what to do with. This is what the garden is about. The garden is about that. The garden is about on the one hand... Because Jesus was, was, those words, depart from me for I never knew you, was said, we can know him. We're entered in. We don't have to be afraid of him. We can know him in his power and his holiness because Jesus has taken the curse of our sins and he's taken the shame away. We can know him. We don't have to be worried about his holiness consuming us because Jesus was consumed by it. But on the other hand, this is the other thing that I think sometimes we're so afraid of about God. Is what about the parts of my life that I don't understand? What about the parts of my life that I don't know about? Can I trust God with those things? The things that I not only don't know, but the things that I can't know. The pain and the suffering that I've experienced. What I love about the garden is here is, on the one hand, Jesus is praying to the Father. and the other hand, he's entering into our suffering with us. And he knows what it's like. He knows what the silence of God is like. He knows what it's like to not know. And he does that that we might know that we have someone that sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We have someone that sympathizes us with our, in our not knowing. And someone, another way of saying it is we have a God who's big enough that we can trust with the parts of our lives that we don't know. And yet is loving enough where we know we can, because he's invited us to know him, that we can trust him with those things. That's why Spurgeon used to love to say, when you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. And this is how Jesus fulfills and transforms this commandment for us. That we don't, our hearts don't have to be filled with the anxiety, but we can know that God not only knows us, but he knows what he's doing in our lives. That he knows what's best for us. And even in those places where he's seemingly silent, I know that some of you have those places tonight. You have places where God, you're praying your heart out about something, and you seem to be, get, you seem to be banging your head against the wall. Or you seem to be, you know, sometimes it feels like when you're praying, your prayers don't get past the ceiling of wherever you're praying. And yet the beauty of the garden is saying, but God knows. And we can trust him with our not knowing because this is who he is. He's revealed himself perfectly in and through Jesus Christ. The links, of his, of his, the links he's gone to know us and the depths with which we can trust the parts that we don't know. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? How do we sort of think about the second commandment in our own lives? Well, there are four things I will kind of think about when you think about letting God be God. And when you think about... Taking God as he is, not as you wish him to be. Here are the four things that I think absolutely change the way that we relate to God, but also to one another. Here's the first. You're not letting God be God if he hates all the same people that you do. One of the ways you know you're not letting God be God is if he hates all the same people that you hate. If he doesn't like all the same people that you don't like. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott, loves, she has the best line. She says it like this. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image. When it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. In other words, if you're not learning to love people that you don't like, God is not your God. And one of the, actually one of the clues for like a community like this, where even tonight there are people that are like mad at each other. I mean, it's fun for my position to kind of watch like seeing the kind of like pissed looks and like. 
you know, the gossip that happens over here and then over there. And one of the things that brings you and me out of that is understanding that that got that person that you're right now like hating that you want to just you're you're like angry Facebook stalking them like you're like looking at all their stuff and want to be like I wish there was like a hate all of this button um, <laughs> that that God loves and died for that person. And when I think about that, like when I think about the people in my life that are hardest to love, that either I feel like, oh, I don't want to be associated with them because they're not X enough or Y enough, that thought always humbles me. That thought that, but this is a person that Jesus loves so much that he gave, him, he gave his own life for, this, for him. If you're not learning to love people that you don't like, God is not your God. Two, you're not letting God be God if he only ever comforts you but never challenges you. You're not letting, let me say this again. You're not letting God be God if he only ever comforts you, but never challenges you. In other words, he only tells you yes, and he never tells you no. Tim Keller's got my favorite illustration here, where he basically says, it's an outdated movie, but it's the movie The Stepford Wives, and you probably have never seen it, but the movie, the idea of the movie is this. These men in Connecticut, country club men, they're frustrated with their wives, so what they do is they kill all their wives, and they replace them with lookalike robots, and like no one, if you visited, you would never be able to tell. It looks exactly like their wives, but the wives are actually programmed robots. And the beauty of it is they only ever do exactly what the men want them to do. This is, by the way, why, why I love my iPhone and why the movie Her spoke to me so much is my iPhone never talks back to me and only ever does what I want it to do, but my wife does not do that. And it would be weird if she did because she wouldn't be a human being and we wouldn't be in a relationship. If my wife only ever did what I wanted her to do, we would not be in a relationship. She would be like a robot because I would be like... You exist for the purpose of making me feel better. And what Keller says is when you, what you and I do is we have a step for God. If you don't have a God that can tell you no, if you don't have a God that can sort of take your dreams and crush them to give you new and better dreams, then you don't have God. Because to be in a relationship with God means, it basically means this. It means that he can tell you no in the places that he knows it's best for you. That's why Keller also says if you knew what God did, you would always do what God does in your life. Because he knows you, and he knows what's best for you. But if you don't ever have a God that can tell you no, if he only ever comforts you and never challenges you, that's why when I graduated, I always thought it was weird when I graduated high school. I don't know if this still happens. I'd be curious if we did like a poll afterwards. But I remember when I graduated high school, came, when I was coming to Carolina, I must have gotten literally at least six of those little Bible promise books. You know what I'm talking about? Like it was like... If you're wrestling with anxiety, here's some scripture for you. Or you're feeling discouraged, here's some scripture for you. Or you're feeling, you know, overweight, here's some scripture for you. <laughs> That's a big theme. I put it in the Freshman 50. We've talked about this. Wendy's spicy chicken number six, nightly, will make you gain 50 pounds. A little, you don't take anything away from tonight. <laughs> Tuck that little nugget away. Um, but... My question as I look at that was like, it was basically like saying, let's take all of the parts of the Bible that we like and make us feel good, but let's leave behind all those parts of the Bible where like my friend John Stone likes to say, God is not afraid to leave prophets lying naked in a field. And when he says that, I'm like, <laughs> but he says that to shock me. Why? Because you can't read the, if you, this is why some of you don't know what to do with the Old Testament is because you only like the comforting parts. And you don't know what to do with the parts that make you uncomfortable. And here's the, po- here's the point. What makes you a Christian, listen to me very clearly. What makes you a Christian is not what you do with the parts of the Bible that you like. It's what you do with the parts of the Bible that you don't like and don't understand. Because what, what does Peter say to Jesus? 
When, when, when literally Jesus preaches a sermon and he has like 6,000 people and then there are like 12 people. And Peter's looking at his, and Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, are you, are you guys going to leave too? You remember what Peter says? Lord, where will we go because you have the words of life. And he's saying even the hard parts, we know, even if we don't understand them or don't like them, we know that they're good for us because you love us. And you know what's best for us. So, two, three. You're not letting God be God if you aren't seeking to know him more. Here's what I mean by this. I think one of the, as I think about my Christian life, you know, I, I became a Christian when I was 15. And so I guess I've been a Christian for 18 years, which is crazy. And I think about that 18 years. Part of what I think about is one of my biggest struggles, and I don't know if this is true for you, but one of my biggest struggles as a Christian is living in my past experiences with God instead of cultivating present experiences with God. Another way of saying it is, I think one of our biggest struggles as Christians is sometimes we're in this place where we feel very stagnant, where we feel like a pond, where we're not moving and we're not, we don't feel like we're growing. Now, sometimes you need friends. That's why you need community. Sometimes you need friends that can affirm places you're growing where you can't see it. And that's part of why the, of God's genius in giving us community together is so that you have other people in your life that not, can not only challenge you but can affirm the ways that God is growing you. You know, I always love to say that you should be able to look as a junior back at yourself as a freshman and be like, freshman me was so dumb. And like, did freshman me love Jesus? Maybe. And that's part of God's growth. You know, he grows us in ways that sometimes are slow. It's not, we don't change. We're not Chia pets. We don't, you know, grow up overnight. It's slow growth. It's long obedience in the same direction. But I think part of what we, part of what this commandment is calling us to is, is what is our daily experience of knowing God? Like, is there a sense in me and is there a sense in you where we really do want to know him more? Where, where that's, you know, because I think the reality for me and the reality for you is this is part of why prayer is so hard. Is typically prayer is something for me where it's not really I want to know God. I want him to do what I want him to do. I mean, I, I vividly remember, like, when my kids were really, really young and we would have these nights where... You know, they would be screaming their heads off, and it was four in the morning, and I love sleep. Like, sleep is an idol for me. Like, I mean, truly. Comfort is an idol for me, but sleep is part of that. And I would be so mad, like, kill somebody mad. And I would pray, like, Jesus, please just make this child sleep. And I remember vividly one night, it was like the Lord was saying, you only ever ask me to do the things that you want me to do. Do you actually want to know me? And could it be that this actually screaming child is going to be somewhat good for your sanctification because you're learning to die to yourself and care about another human being and put, your, put their life in, in, you know, ahead of your life? And I think this is part of the thing is, is, you know, letting God be God means we're seeking to know him more. I love the way a friend described marriage recently. He said marriage is you marry the one that you love and then marriage is learning to love the one that you marry. And I love that because not only is it helpful to think about marriage, but it's actually helpful to think about your relationship with God. That when you come to know him and you come to embrace Jesus in the gospel and the forgiveness of your sins, and it's incredible, part of what the Christian life is about is learning to love him and learning to know him more and more and more and know about his word more and know about you know, his heart more. Um, and here's the last one for you're not letting God be God if you aren't letting him turn your monologues into dialogues. What do I mean by that? It's similar to what I just said in the third one. But here's the idea is a monologue is me and you telling God what we want him to do. And you and I have places like that. You and I have places we have dreams. We have relationships. 
We have all kinds of parts of our lives where we want to tell God what we'd like him to do and we want him to bless what our hopes and dreams are instead of a dialogue, which is letting God not only dialogue with us about our hopes and dreams, but it's actually asking him. Instead of telling him what to do, a dialogue is asking him what we should do. And part of God's grace in your life is he loves to begin to do this in your life, to turn your monologues, wherever they are, into dialogues with him. And sometimes he does. Sometimes, this is why I love the footprints thing. You know, where they, this, I hate footprints because the idea is like, oh, and that's the place where I carried you, my child. And it's like, oh, that's sweet. But real footprints would be, and that place over there, there's this, there's this little comic strip that does this I love. I'll try to find it and post it. But there's, there's this place where it says, and that spot over there is where I dragged you kicking and screaming. And I love that because that's typically our lives. That's why David Foster Wallace used to say nothing. I've never let anything out of my head, out of my hands that I wasn't clinging to with clenched fists. And that's so true, but God loves you enough to begin to rip those things away from you that you might know him and have him. I'll close with this. There's a, a scene in Harry Potter that, that I love. And um, it's the scene where, Harry, where Dobby, a lot of our favorite characters, meets Harry for the first time. And if you know the scene, um, basically Dobby has this great line where he says, Dobby has heard of your greatness, but of your goodness Dobby never knew. And in the scene, it like, I'm like, in the movie, I'm like crying. Because I think that's so often my experience with God. Do you think there could be places where he might surprise you? Do you think there might be places about him where he's far better than you've imagined him to be? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we need you to show us um, that you are bigger and better than we've thought you to be, that we've known you to be. Um, Lord, some of us are, are um, we want this and yet we don't want this. We can relate to Paul in Romans 7 where we do the things that we know we shouldn't do. And yet, Lord, we long to do the things that we know we should do and yet we're struggling. And Lord, I pray um, for those of us who are there, which is all of us in one way or another, that you would begin to grow more and more and more um, a love for you that is genuine, a love for you that is sincere, a love for you that we know we're never going to be perfect uh, and we know that your love is always going to drive it. We, Lord, we know that you first loved us, not that we loved you, but that you first loved us and gave your son as a sacrifice for our sins. And yet, Lord, I pray that that would be real to us tonight in such a way where we would long to know you more, we would long to love you more. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.